Tuesday Night Talk is a part of Real Sound Reviews YouTube channel where I make tutorial, reviews and many incredible things to help you in sound creation. You can support by donation on patreon.com zdv and indeed subscribe to never miss a single episode. Tuesday Night Talk. Tonight we are very glad to receive Jeremy Young with um, experimental sound artists located in Montreal, Quebec. Uh, hi Jeremy. Hi. Before we talk about uh, the kind of music you are uh, doing, I, I was curious to know if uh, um, music is part of your uh, primary uh, education and um, what are the artists who uh, were major influences uh, for and will inspire you? It can be in music, but also in different artistic field. Well, the, the first part of your question is an easy answer. <laughs> um, I think I, I've always grown up around music. Um, not that my parents were musicians, but there was just music in the house always, always, always. Um, I grew up in New York, so um, I moved to Canada when I was 18. That's when I started to really kind of figure out how to like blend my influences into my playing as a musician. Um, and so the influences, like the stuff that I was listening to started to make its way into my playing style. So it would be back then it was again, always a diverse sort of mixture of styles, but um, I was really into jazz and improvised music. And then I got into avant-garde jazz and more free free improv, like, you know, um, coming from all the various traditions, like Derek Bailey and, um, Peter Bratzman and, and, uh, you know, like the, the sort of European UK scene, as well as, you know, uh, Ornette Coleman and, uh, Albert Eiler and, um, uh, Cecil Taylor and Jackie McLean and, you know, the New York sort of, and Chicago player, like, uh, art ensemble of Chicago and Sun Ra and stuff like that. So th there's that, um, influencing my playing in a free way, but then there's also the sort of like Glenn Branca, uh, Sonic Youth, like, um, really minimal post-punk, uh, even, uh, talking heads and, and, um, uh, yeah, like, uh, yeah, stuff like that, like a Lower East, uh, television and stuff like that, sort of learning how to play more angular, minimal, uh, repetitive stuff. Um, all, all of this stuff when I was like 18, 19 was kind of coming into my brain <laughs> and informing my playing as a guitarist in little bands that I would start here and there. And then one big band that eventually got pretty popular here in the, well, back in the U S uh, and we did some touring. Um, that's not a, a project anymore that exists, but, um, once I started getting on stage, I think I was like, maybe I want to say like 21 or something when I first started really like touring, um, started getting on stage and then you have to kind of set your stuff up. You have to sound check. You have to understand sound in a room. You have to understand your sound coming out of the amp, the pedals to make sure that there's no feedback. There's no stuff that's going out of control every single night. That kind of like working mentality as a musician was probably the biggest education I, I had in terms of developing my sound because then you start to incorporate new elements and you realize what do I like what do I don't like you start chipping away at stuff that is unnecessary or problematic um, you start developing a sound that can that is consistent but um, allows you to sort of feel free and energetic while you're on stage so I think interestingly the sort of second half of my life as a musician, which is more about um, uh, analog recording techniques, uh, sort of compositional experimentation, John Cage-inspired uh, aleatoric practices and processes, um, conceptual art, philosophical underpinnings, and stuff like that. The, the second half of my, of my development as a musician, I think it birthed on stage as a touring musician when I was younger, because it's both understanding sound and, and solving problems, but then realizing that there's so much more to what happens in a room sonically than the the note that you're playing on the guitar. 
And that can go in so many different ways. It can be textural, rhythmic, uh, timbral, um, microtonal, you know, compositional, improvisational. Like there's all these ways to approach creating sound. And I was like really young when I started to think, well, it can't just be this. It can't, it can't just be guitar, bass, piano, drums, right? Like there has to be more than that. So yeah, I, I mean, I could talk about my influences and in working on tape, like uh, everything from uh, William Bazinski to Luke Ferrari to, uh, you know, Stockhausen to uh, a very small band in Montreal called Exhaust, which was just an improvising trio with tape, bass, and drums. Like, all that kind of stuff is, is great. But really, it was like, I think it stopped being, like in my early 20s, it stopped being, how do I transmit my influences into my playing? And more, how do I explore the fun shit that I think is just really exciting and do it in in a way that I, I can handle and I can kind of feel free and uh, feel creative with. So it was really kind of transmitting out, I think, starting from there. I am glad that you uh, speak about this link between the composition, notes, music, and sound on the other side, and all this thing mixed together and trying to focus on what is best when you go on stage and on tour for practical reasons, but also for uh, um, because this is the very essence of music, and my channel is about this, making links uh, between the two. Mm. Uh, it's uh, indeed, indeed, and this, this is neglected um, too many times, uh, and yeah. But before we move on, I I, th I totally agree with you. I mean, I've, I have a lot of conversations with musicians who originate their ideas practically in the studio, which is totally fine, or, or sound artists uh, who are conceptualizing pieces um, with a lot of the, the end result or the processes kind of already thought out. And I think the difference with somebody like me and a lot of musicians that I kind of came up with is that those ideas are originated on the stage. Something happens in improvisation or something happens somewhere where there's a, an inkling of an idea or a concept that is what is either a mistake or just something you'd like to work out in the moment. And it sticks in your brain and you're like, that I want to develop. Whenever the next time I'm in my studio or some other studio is, when I'm I'm gonna put a little note, write a note to myself, and I'm gonna develop that. But the originating point I think is like in a live environment, and it's always been like that for me. Um, and that that is something that, in a way, I think sets me and some of my peers apart from. Yeah just a, a lot of really great artists that are on the scene right now, but who, who sort of go on stage like once or twice per year to present their work. Um, it's a different, it's a different feeling. It's like this work was fully thought out in, in my little world or in, in the, in the world that I'm creating son, um, versus just like taking what's out there in the world and kind of then reducing it into how do I transmit this through my little voice here with my tools and stuff. Yeah, I'm, I think also that uh, it's normal to take the best out of some things that we feel in, uh, in mm. primarily that it's, uh, it's kind of contingencies, but in fact, this is where you get creative. Oh, this thing, let's, let's work mm. on it. it. It was random, but let's get it out of this random field and make, make it more about, uh, about this. Uh, yeah. Yeah, so um, nothing replaces listening in terms of discovering the music of an artist, but I feel like, uh, according to your band camp, there are, I would say, two big types uh, I see of uh, your recent works. They are what I would call the um, uh, experimental, but um, I don't know if it's technical or... Uh, it's, for example, mm. like Arc of Steam when you let this uh, loop exhaust uh, until it's demagnetized. I find this, this is raw material. And then there are other mm. things like collaboration, where what I like is there are experimentations on sound, but there are there is poetry, there is uh, lyricism, and I really love that. 
especially when there is there are collaboration would you agree with with uh, this um, this description i make well uh, yeah yeah absolutely i mean i i think i think of it in a different way but you're not wrong you're 100% right <laughs> the way that i think of it is is more okay well there's there's two things actually that i think i would respond to that i think in a, in a way all of my work is aleatoric in nature in that and chance based in nature in that i never want to be the sole um organizer of sound in my work i need there to be stuff that is just simply chance based um and i can manipulate and work with stuff whether it's the source material like um uh arc of steam was just a random loop that i made by accident but by, by just splicing tape uh blind like i wasn't and the source material on the tape you barely even hear to begin with so it almost doesn't matter but um but that but so much of my work is just finding sound whether it's like look i have like hundreds of tape reels that are just like lying around it's like my whole studio is just tape reels i just buy these things on ebay whatever on the tape i'll find a way to use it i'll find a way to create something from that um whether it it's like it ends up being like a collage or it ends up being more fragmented or more elongated or whatever what i'm trying to say is that there are artists who work with who are really into the collage aspect of it and and like really make a thing of sort of um you know this is like a, a slice of like everything all at you at once there you know and i love that i think it's cacophonous i think it's energetic it's fantastic and the performer becomes the sort of uh almost like a dj where they're like christian markley style you know just sort of collaging sounds but but the performer is the center of the music making uh, aspect of it with me um i take a little bit of a step back where i have my own processes and my own sort of things but the source material kind of has its own life on the side um and i think that goes through all of my work um and the source material could be from me like in the case of my latest release august tape sketches which is 100% just solo guitar improvisations um but then i dubbed it to tape and i blind spliced and so the the aleatoricism the chance based aspect comes from the fact that i have no idea what's on the tapes it's me and, and it's my recordings but in the moment when i'm going to put the tape into the machine and and let it roll i just have to work with whatever i'm hearing in the moment um and so the source material is again it's chance based i have no control over that but the act as an artist for me is uh, i'm responding to it i'm letting it live its own life um and i'm just sort of working through my techniques and my processes as an artist to uh to make something of it or whatever um so throughout all my work that is the asp that is something that i think i take really seriously but you're right in that it branches out into two different ways of working and i think the difference is from my end and maybe it's the same way that you see it uh but it's just you're interpreting it differently is there are pieces that i think are developed um in like a residency situation or with a conceptual framework already built in where it's like this is what i'm doing and i'm not going to leave this I, i'm really just going to stay within this bubble um because the concept or the or the 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 parameters of the residency are built in and i and i, I want to hold myself to those limitations versus works like amaro and august tape sketches uh and other works that i've done i can't spokes is a very old piece of mine that's like this but where there is a concept and there's a generating um, input uh, moment where it's like, this is sort of how I'm going to be operating here, but the end result is totally free of limitations. I really let it go until I feel like the work is complete. Um, 
And that, that was the case with Amaro, where there was a lot of work being done in the studio. There's a lot of things that are coming in and, and affecting um, my compositional process. And I'm, I'm chipping away, but then I'm building, and I'm chipping away, and I'm building. It's like constantly sort of like limiting and then re-expanding. Like, yeah, just doing improvisations with the oscillators, doing these different techniques of... Um, a double loop collage with different uh, tonal systems with my oscillators and letting that stuff play out, letting me hear it and respond to it and react to it. And then I come up with an idea, okay, I like this, let me build on this, but not in the way that I was building on it before. And then you take it to a different place than it ever could have gone. So to me, I, I see my work as like, some stuff is like highly limited, <laughs> Um, piano ver like is was just three piano three piano tape loops and I just let it go. Arc of steam very limited one tape loop just let it go to the end. Um, and then uh, the poetics of time space was done in a residency at a museum that was like severely limited in terms of what I could and couldn't do. Um, versus work that just sort of is allowed to grow and blossom in in ways that are unpredictable. So that's how I see it. Unfortunately, I was not able to attend to your concert in, in Riga, and I was curious to see more about this stage technique that you have, where some of the tapes of are um, somewhere, and then you, you, you grab them. How do you proceed? We will put some pictures uh, of, of the concert taken by Richard, but um, so there is a pre-made things, you know what is what are in the tapes, or um, more or less. This is what separates this latest tour that I did in in Europe. Um, uh, where unfortunately we were supposed to meet up and and uh, it it didn't work out. But um, and I'm continuing to do a few performances uh, in Canada and in the U.S. Uh, this year with this setup. But this is what separates this setup from what I have always done before, which is that uh, normally I have my my gear, which is um, contact mics, radios, um, an electromagnetic frequency um, uh, capturing device and amplifier, and, uh, and my oscillators. And my oscillators are sort of the musical element, and everything else is textural, rhythmic, timbral, um, atmospheric, whatever. But I, I normally kind of just have my gear. Sometimes it changes from tour to tour what I use and what I don't use, but that's the setup and I improvise. Or maybe I have some work that I'm, I'm sort of working out on the road. It's like a theme and I'll attack that theme and then I'll create variations or I'll move away from it or develop it or whatever. But basically it's improvised. And the gear is not, I mean, it it's just there. There's no prefix source material. There's no sampling. The difference between that, uh, that's what I almost always do. Th on this tour that I just did and to perform this work, it's also improvisational, but it's only entirely prefix source material. So it's, it's those solo guitar improvisations from the album that are, are cut to tape and they're on tape loops and... Um, and they're available for me to take, uh, at will, but the, the difference is that, um, and I kind of improv my way through a piece, but it, it isn't really random. Um, and the reason is, uh, you know, well, let me see if I could show you.
just grab this. Oh, you can see in the background. That's some of some of the some of the tape loops in the background. Um, in preparation for this tour, I reorganized the original loops that I made in the recording uh, August tape sketches. Um, not really reorganized. I just sort of organized them, if I'm being honest. Um, and I I decided, okay, this goes with this. This. Um, you know, this one loop, which is kind of mostly a drone or very minimal, um, can be, could be an introduction to this loop, which is more of a chord progression with, um, two and a half or three chords that are kind of looping around. These things work together. They're in the same key. Um, so I'm not performing the album, but I'm kind of basically the album. I've deconstructed it back to its original source material and now I'm redeveloping it in a new way in the live show. Um, but it's in the same way that I made the album. It's just the end result is totally different. Um, so I can really quickly just show you. So this is sort of, uh, I don't know if you could see that on the camera. Well, whatever. But anyway, I write, I write on the loops. Um, I just write notes like uh, different, you know, if I, the piece, this one. I don't know why it's called Kelso. <laughs> I think I saw that word somewhere and I just wrote it on the tape loop, but <clears throat> this is part of this piece. So there's a prefixed, um, maybe eight or 10 or 12 loops that can be incorporated into this piece. And when playing live, I might decide to use only four. I might decide to use all of them. Um, I might, make the piece flow in a way that is a little bit different than last night. So let me try this out. And, you know, so it's still improvisational, but it, the source material is kind of just there waiting for me. Um, so I'm not grabbing random loops uh, like I might have done in the past. And yeah, as, as following, I have some kind of provocative question for people who are, who are really outside this kind of methods and universe. Why loops and tapes uh, instead of bringing a laptop on stage with uh, with with pre-recorded sound and and the DAW? Uh, why did you make this choice? Uh, well, I I don't think that my answer to that question is the same as um, most other artists who use analog equipment like oscillators and modular synths and 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 tape and. Um, I don't, I've never used a laptop to make music. I mean, I, I'll record albums and stuff like that, but that's not, that's not indicative of my process. Um, it's a personal preference why I don't use the laptop, but I think it's really important for me why I do use the equipment I use. And I consider them to just be like instruments like anything else. The reason I like working with analog equipment is because... To, to me, and actually this goes into the entire philosophy of the record that I made uh, a, a couple years ago. It came out last year called Amaro. The whole thing is that as, as an improviser of any instrument, you are working on your technique, guitar, saxophone, piano, or whatever. You're working on your understanding of music, your understanding of, of your voice, your, your listening abilities... But I think one of the most important aspects that almost never gets talked about is you're working on your body. It's a form of training and exercise, and it's a form of um, haptic response, like hand-to-eye coordination or hand-to-ear coordination. And in electronic music, that never gets talked about. No, uh, The only time I ever hear people talking about hand-eye coordination is turntablism. Kid Koala, Christian Markley, um, uh, Maria Chavez, um, people who are working with the physical sort of nature of turntable. But that's all electronic music, even with laptop stuff. We just we just never talk about it. And my problem with laptop music from a personal standpoint is that most times it's completely devoid of that aspect of it because it's so... Um, a lot of it is pre-dialed in. That's just the nature of the technology. It's it's a convenience. Your your parameters are already there. You just have to move the fader somewhere or whatever. Um, and the sound sources are already there. You just have to click it in. So 
So that aspect of making electronic work, and especially in an improvisational setting, is is just void. Um, I do know artists who are very active and bodily when it comes to digital um, synths and uh, and la- and yeah, whatever. That's great and that's awesome. For me, the most important thing is I need to develop my relationship as an artist with my body and this equipment. So whether it's the oscillators, and I know this sounds stupid, but moving the faders, uh, not not the faders, but literally frequency dial and stuff to change the pitch between like what would be, uh, you know, like a B flat and uh, and an A natural or something. All of those microtonal pitches in between, I I need my ears to be so precise in terms of what I what I'm hearing, what I want, and how I'm going to achieve it with my finger dexterity. And then what happens with my other hand is that I'm using the volume faders to make sure that this C5, uh, you know, a, a higher pitch C doesn't just come in super high pitched as opposed to the C2. That's like, you know, a low frequency tone where you really kind of need to up the gain or whatever. So I'm volume modulating. I'm modulating a little bit of reverb and delay um, to make sure that the pitch doesn't get out of control or that it sits really nicely and it's not too harsh on the ears. Because I'm working with square waves and sine waves, I'm always, I hear something, I have it in my mind's eye. I'm trying to transmit a vision, but I'm also responding to exactly what is going on in the speakers. And I'm, I'm working hands in really subtle adjustments and stuff to make sure that it's all working through my body. So to get back to your original question, the reason I work with tape is that it, the physical thing, I'm holding something like the sound is in my hands. Um, I love that. And I, I will never not love that. That is so important for me as a musician and an artist, but also just look, if, if you're an audience person, <laughs> What's more interesting, seeing loops going around and seeing somebody running back and forth and making physical adjustments to the sound or whatever, or somebody that's kind of just behind the screen? Like, I'm sorry, but I completely, I'm going to go with the former. Yeah, I completely agree with you. There are two aspects, the visual aspect as, yeah, this live performance, <laughs> something happening. But I feel like, don't you think like music like Kevin Drum is doing or Raphael Toral, for example, VR, these are, or what you may have been doing or Eliane Hadig, they're, they're speaking directly to the body. And what I, I feel like you say is completely irrelevant. Yeah. Absolutely. I, and I totally agree about uh, Radig uh, as well as uh, Paulina Oliveros um, for, for one thing. You know, it's like, it can be electronic, it can be minimal, um, but, but it just, it just sits inside of you. I, I yeah, I love that. And I, yeah, I agree. Kevin drum kind of does that as well. I mean, it's, it's very physical Mika Vainio as well, like very electronic, but I mean, Mika Vainio always used sort of analog oscillators and stuff and it was really heavy. Um, but it just, it just sits in, sits inside of you and yeah, fills you up. Um, I mean, Sun and Stephen O'Malley <laughs> as well, but um, I mean that's the, not so electronic. But um, th- but the other thing I think that that is is worth mentioning ab- about the sort of the the audience's perspective is that I I just think like electronic music comes from everything else. Like it, electronic music, like. It takes influences from, you know, everywhere, like um, dance music kind of mostly coming out of African music and, and, you know, like African minimal music and like kind of made its way into techno. And like there are so many ways to sort of transmit those influences and stuff. And I think when you bring it into the physical realm, it takes on a, a punk aesthetic, you know, like. I don't know, watching um, Rancid or something on stage, like what they're doing is so minimal uh, musically. Like there's just a few chords. They're just, it's super repetitive or whatever. 
but the physicality of that music, it's just coming at you in these pulses and waves. And there's like, that's just so exciting and interesting. And I don't make harsh music like that in any way. I mean, for electronic music and for noise music, I think my music is pretty, uh, pretty puny. Um, but like to me, I think it's just important that there's this physical presence, um, on stage. So it's not really about the gear. Like it's not a gear thing. It's just, I like the idea that the sound lives, um, in, uh, like on tape and in, you know, the, the, the circuit boards and in the tubes of these oscillators and stuff like it's, there's a, there's a physical manifestation of sound that kind of comes through and, um, uh, I, I just love it. It's a presence. It's a it's a presence that I'm sort of mediating as an artist when I'm on with it and improvising with it, and I I love it. Yeah. So, <laughs> as a as a direct consequence, if I, consequent as a direct consequence, sorry, if I understand, you are making mm-hmm. the the mastering of your albums to control uh, until the final cut, the uh, the EQs of the sound. No, I lo- I love working with other engineers whenever possible i i try not to mix my own records although um budget wise it just <laughs> lately uh, I've, I've had to kind of go into the mixing of my albums but when it comes to mastering i always work with other engineers um t- to me that's like a collaboration that i welcome all the time um and i'm a really collaborative musician i mean it's only like Amaro is a solo record, but it's really the foundation is those duet collaborations between, um, I think like eight other artists, maybe, maybe six or something, but I mean, it's a solo record, but it's really collaborative. This, this latest album, August tape sketches is the most like non collaborative I've ever worked, (laughs) but therein again, I mean, I was working with uh, a visual artist and I was working with Giuseppe Elassi to do the mastering who I always I love working with him he's a wonderful engineer and artist um, and so you know it's it's good to sort of incorporate other people's ears whenever possible so that that that's pretty important to me I'm not too concerned with like I, I almost never have like a vision for for the the sound of a record to me, it's more like compositional and did I achieve what I wanted to do as an artist or something? And then I, I'm very happy to give it up to somebody to impart their vision on the final product sonically. And I feel that way about labels too. Like once I've created the work, um, like if a label wants to go in a certain direction with, um, packaging or with, uh, artwork or marketing language or whatever, I- I'm all for it. I'm, I'm really all for it. Um, yeah, this collaboration yeah. aspect was, yeah. was going to be my next question. Uh, I was amazed to see the uh, wide number of projects you are involved in. So there is also this uh, Soundfly Academy uh, that is... Uh, some, oh, yeah. Yeah, but it's, but it's, it's connected, I feel. And the uh, um, label and book publishing, the name is Palaver, that's it. Oh, this is uh that's that's pretty defunct. <laughs> this that, that's kind of an uh, an old thing. I mean, yeah, it goes into my uh, my artistic sort of vision, but it's it's definitely not around anymore. Um, but it was basically an audiobook publishing house that I founded with my wife, my partner, um, where we recorded independent um, books uh, published by. So the the authors owned the rights to their text and the works were published by independent publishers. So we worked with the publisher and we worked with the author directly to record audio versions of their books um, as a courtesy to them. And then it, and then we commissioned um, a composer or, or a musician or producer to create a, a, an original soundtrack to the book. Um, and... Uh, the idea was that it was a revenue share project, so we incurred all the costs, and then we just shared uh, the revenue amongst all four of those parties: us, the musician, uh, the author, and the original publisher. Um, and uh, yeah, we we did a few projects, and it was really wonderful. Um, it's just 
time, the amount of time it takes to record and edit an audiobook is really a full time. I didn't have a full time amount of time. Um, and then in order to, you know, to grow the business, we probably would have needed financing or investment. And <clears throat> that just wasn't an option uh, back then. <clears throat> so it kind of petered out, but the but the project it's, itself, I think, had a lot of merit. And the, honestly, the main goal was just to try to create new avenues for audiobook and uh, publishing that could, you know, it was sort of like a long tail model where if enough independent authors and publishers had the ability to present their work in audio, um, eventually there'd be a little bit of a critical mass of independent modeled um, opportunities to lean on the sheer monopoly that is um, Audible and ACX and Amazon. Um, who for, for a lot of people that don't know, ACX is like the sole distributor of audiobook um, uh, files f pretty much globally. Like, there's really no one else that's doing it. And so Audible, which is owned by ACX, um, and Amazon are kind of in cahoots together in terms of being primarily the sole like distribution platform. It's like, imagine if musicians only had Spotify, like that's your, that's your one revenue sources is a, is a horrible <laughs> giant company that wants to pay you as little as possible and pay their shareholders as much as possible. So that's pretty much the situation with audiobooks right now. Um, and independent publishers and platforms are trying to do whatever they can, but it's really just like a megalith. So um, th the idea was just to kind of nudge up against the big players in the industry and see if there was a market for um, there to be an independent uh, distribution platform eventually. And I'm, I'm really passionate about that. I just don't think I'm the guy <laughs> who's going to do that. Um, and about Soundfly Academy, it Seems. Well, that's where Soundfly comes in, actually, because yeah. mm -hmm. because in in a way, I mean, Soundfly is is the company that was founded by my band in Sontag Shogun, Ian Temple. He's the piano player in my in my band. Um, he founded the company. I got brought in early, and it's it's online education. It's affordable. It's global, um, and it's a it's a it's a community with an in incredible diversity of topics, uh, as well as, um, uh, yeah, the, the community members are all over the world. There's, there's a lot of them and, uh, it's a, it's a positive community for musicians. So it's non-competitive. Uh, it's a peer to peer learning network. Um, and, uh, the customer service for our company is like, is the number one thing. So I know that sounds like really markety and, and weird, but for every single person that comes through the community, you basically have, um, the Soundfly staff at your full disposal. You could ask us questions at any time. We help out, we promote student work. Um, we put a lot of our resources towards, um, developing students work, um, in one-on-one -on -one learning capacities. We, we feature students on the blog and the newsletter, whatever. We're constantly sort of trying to elevate the work of our community um, in a way that I think a lot of other online education uh, platforms simply just don't care about. Uh, like a lot of education platforms tend to be kind of Netflix style where you just up, you enjoy the content and you you stay subscribed or unsubscribed or whatever until, um, you know, you, ch you, ch you, you, yeah. <clears throat> so we're, we're a lot more sort of like uh, interpersonal with the way that we do our model, but um yeah, it's a Soundfly is an amazing platform. At this point now, we've worked with instructors like Kimbra, Comtrues. Um, we're about to launch a course actually in two days on uh, by with Com. Uh, sorry, Ryan Lott from Sunlux, uh, who's an incredible film score composer and a pop artist. He just did the score for this A twenty four film called Everything Everywhere All at Once, which is going nuts. Um, yeah, Jalen. Uh, Kiefer, yeah, a, a whole bunch of incredible artists. So we're just working with more and more artists um, that are wonderful to sort of teach the courses and stuff. That's my uh, my my day job. Um, so I'm really lucky to be able to be working in this way, um, educating people with music um, and 
helping to sort of build a really positive musical community out in the world um, and helping people improve their skills. I'm not sure that has anything to do with me as an artist. I mean, I guess you could maybe draw some through lines if, if you want. Yeah, there's probably something there. But um, I think it just comes from an, uh, the vision of my bandmate, first of all, to, to create a really um, like life-changing platform for musicians in terms of developing their skills and, and, and their networks. But uh, I, it just comes from an empathetic view of capitalism. <laughs> like, you know, if we're going to charge for a service and a product, if we're going to make a business out of asking musicians to contribute their money, how can we make this the most empathetic and sympathetic model possible so that everyone is actually really happy to be part of this, um, this consumer transaction? Like, we don't want to take people's money if they're not comfortable. Like, if you signed up and it's not what you wanted, you 100% of the time you get a refund. You know what I mean? It's like... I don't know. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. and all the, uh, the questions cannot be found on some facebook forums or because uh i think right now what I, what i feel i see in what what you are telling is also being able to help people address the right questions before finding answers because this is one of the major problem i think when it's uh, about that's important yeah that's that that matters a lot yeah yeah and also i, I mean simply just to kind of keep this point going a little bit further is um, when it comes to education, I think the, the value of having somebody working with you, whether it's literally just somebody in the community who's listening to your tracks and giving you feedback, like a peer to peer network. Um, if it's somebody who is more of a customer service person, who's just guiding you through what's available, um, or who's just open to listening to your concerns, or if it's some, somebody more, established like a coach or a mentor which is all all of what all of which uh, soundfly offers um and is built into our model when you work with somebody to um to develop your skills and to just develop your voice and your sound and get feedback like that changes everything and i think one of the the big issues with education today online education is that I have no problem with YouTube. I have no problem with Facebook groups and all this kind of stuff. I think it's incredible, like the digital development of education. The problem is that students who are 16, 17, 18 years old, or even 38, 39, 40, 52, whatever, like trying to get back into music, so isolated when you're learning online. And that isolation is really a demotivator. And it, um, like, and I think, yeah, so number one thing I think when we were developing Soundfly and even just every week when we go into meetings and we talk about this kind of stuff is like how do we foster a stronger community how do we insert more positivity create more opportunities and stuff and just create more connections between people within the community or between their mentors and their instructors and stuff like that that really changes everything my last question will be um, what I call the magic question for every person interviewed, as far as you can remember uh, in your childhood, what is the first memory uh, connected to sound or music? Oh, man. That's, that's, a great, that's a great question to just, like, dump on someone. <laughs> well, okay, I will, <laughs> I will say that this is not my earliest memory musically, but... It is an early memory for sure. When I was when I was very young, um, my parents had this big station wagon, like an Oldsmobile station wagon. Um, uh, in you know eighty seven, eighty eight, um, and uh, they used to always put on tapes of like of like Phantom of the Opera, like the original cast recording of Phantom of the Opera and Les Misérables and stuff like that. And, it, or, or even if it was music like Peter Paul or Bob Dylan or, or whatever, um, they didn't have a lot of tapes for the car. Right. <laughs> so what we had was just on loop all the time. It was like, you, if we went on a road trip, you know, 
we would be listening to the same tape, side A, side B, side A, side B, over and over again. So one of my earliest memories is just a car filled with music and sound and everybody singing along and just like like a big car, you know, <laughs> just being filled with that sound. Um, and it being really just like a connecting point, like... I remember this line and dad remembers this line. And so we're singing together and, you know, and, uh, just, just being really familiar and, and, and really like enjoying that sound. When you come into the car, this is a of like sonic immersion. Um, yeah, that, that's, that's a pretty strong memory for me, but I don't think that's my earliest memory. I got, I really got to think about that one. I do. I do remember when I was a toddler, um, when I was, probably a year old or less than a year old. Um, my parents were living in an apartment in Manhattan and, uh, there was a long hallway in the apartment and there was a row of, of like, like lanterns, um, like lights, there were light bulbs, but there were, there were sort of lantern kind of things that came off the wall. Like it was an old, an old apartment. Um, and I remember, uh, being really excited when someone turned on and off the lights and I would sort of look at the lights like, you know, and look at them like flickering or something. And look, and I would always want to be like watching them when someone like turned on and off the lights. Um, so there was something about that, like this sort of moment of change in the environment and here's a connection. But, um, one of the people who I think has influenced my compositional and my improvisational, um, uh, uh, mindset and techniques and um, f- f- mental framework. Uh, Michael Pizarro. Him, uh, he's a composer. He was a professor at Cal Arts. Now he goes by. I I, th- I think he got married and now he he took his partner's name. So now I think he goes by Michael Pizarro Lou. But I could be wrong. But anyway, Michael Pizarro as a as a composer, I think he was asked once, "What is." Um, music or what is the composer's role and his response was that music is simply a, a change in the auditory environment right that's all that it is it doesn't exist in the physical realm it's 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 it just exists as airwaves passing by your ears so it's whatever is happening in the auditory environment at at the moment all music is is a change in in that environment and we as humans we 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 react to those changes as as environments so the composer's role simply is just to manage the change with intention and it's like anybody that has these sort of grandiose visions like wagnerian visions of what they want to do with music and create these that's wonderful that's great but I think it's important just to recognize the fact that music really doesn't exist beyond the air molecules that pass your eardrum. So just to sort of like take it down and recognize that we're all we're doing is contributing to a natural environment that's already there, that's already very musical and full. It like this environment is completely full with everything that we need as humans to survive. And music is just simply a change in the environment. So if I'm making a connection with myself as a composer now and myself as a toddler who's looking at the lights, I think I was I was just really into that idea, like always, my whole life. I just really into this idea of, oh, there's a change in the environment. How does that make me feel? Then that's it. That's what art is. <laughs> Take it or leave it. That's super great, super meaningful. Thank you very much for being with us, Jeremy. And uh, thank you, Jill. We wish you the best for next albums and uh, your uh, upcoming tour. If you enjoy watching this content, please drop a like, subscribe, and we will see you on this channel very soon.